Listen, players. <laughs> You're listening to the Movement, Strength and Play podcast by the School of Calisthenics. Here are your hosts, Tim and Jacko. We're going to go on a little bit of a deep dive this week and we've got a very special guest. We've got Mike Pekarski, who is a physical therapist and works specifically with MMA and combat sport athletes. And what we wanted to do is get on somebody who can give us a little bit of detail about how to survive and how to be robust and resilient in one of the most sort of difficult, challenging and physically demanding sports there is and see what we can learn from that and apply to our own movement, strength and calisthenics training. Yeah, so whether you you might be going, well, I, I've never done MMA or even what's MMA? Like, it's basically mixed martial arts, like fighting. And you think, well, how's that going to be relevant to me with my training? Well, at some point, likelihood in your movement training, your bodyweight training, your calisthenics training, or sport training, whatever it is that you do, you'll have had some sort of, like, injury or a little bit of a niggle that needs a little bit of tenderness and that needs a little bit of care. And... But there's nothing like building robustness as Michael go into detail of like can he's training people to be able to their sort of like elbows and knees and the, the various wrist joints and things that often people have discomfort in in calisthenics around the wrist and the and the elbow he's training guys to be able to resist somebody trying to snap that uh, so certainly if you are strong enough to be able to robust enough to be able to stop someone snapping it you're going to start to be able to rehab your sort of elbow issue that you've got from doing a few too many handstand push-ups or a few too many pull-ups. So there's some great advice in here uh, about, as Tim said, building that robustness. And uh, yeah, it's one to get your notepad out, make a few notes because uh, it gets technical, but in a good way. Yeah, and if you're not if you're not sort of um, au fait with your functional anatomy, do a little bit of Google. That'll sort you out straight away in terms of giving you a little bit of a visual picture of what uh, Mike is talking about. And if you need some more visual pictures and references to help you with your training, then we've got our all of our online training programs are available in our virtual classroom where you can come and get all of your calisthenics training for specific movements. If you're just getting started and you want to work on the fundamental basic patterns of push pulls, pull ups and dips, and, and have a little go at our strength and play workouts as well to get your heart rate going and just generally have more fun it's all available online you can get there at classroom.schoolofcalisthenics.com and you can have a little browse around for seven days and if you like it you can stay if you don't like it then it's no, no problem you can go and have a little bit of a look at something else and maybe you'll come back in the future and don't forget not only do you get a seven day free trial whether you're signing up for a monthly or an annual membership because you're trying to make that commitment to long-term uh, progress and health and investing in physical pension but not only do you get those seven days free to test it out every week remember we do a live Q&A so that you can come in to join a Zoom with either me or Tim and we are there to help you answer any questions you've got about your training about using the platform um, anything at all we're there to help you and uh, yeah that is something that you can join and be a part of for absolutely free via Zoom the details for all of that are in the dashboard within the virtual classroom Right, let's start talking about how to not get your arm snapped when you're in an octagon. <laughs> or just how to stronger than you. not hurt your elbow when you're doing a pull-up. All right, sit back, enjoy Mike Pekarski on the Movement, Strength and Play podcast. You nearly, nearly lost yourself then, didn't you? Um, <laughs> roll that jingle. Old tight Jacko, you little eager beaver. We need to tell the people about this week's podcast sponsors of course how could i well, not that i didn't forget i was just just testing you out tim yes hemp heroes are back sponsoring the podcast um they are producing the highest quality purest 100 organic vegan full spectrum 
CBD oil. And just because they haven't been sponsoring the podcast for the last few weeks doesn't mean I, Tim, haven't been taking my CBD oil before bed. I actually have started doing a little bit, just a few little cheeky drops after a training session just to help things like chill and mellow out. Um, And then, uh, yeah, before bed and having a beautifully night's sleep. Well done. I, I'm glad to see your consistency and diligence exactly. with, your, with your recovery and regeneration. So it's a great little product, guys, and it's a, it's a full-spectrum CBD oil, super high-quality, fully organic, one of the best that you can get on the market. And, and Jack and I both got it as part of our recovery and just general day-to-day life routine. I've spoken about this before, but it's particularly if I've had a long day working and some intense mm. computing work, which I know a lot of us are doing during these troubled times, it's a really good way to help me just to downregulate at the end of the day. And they've also got a load of other products as well, which you can go and check out on the website. Um, we've tried their protein powder. We've got their some coffee. It's just it, it just the CB World, D World jacket, once you get into it, it becomes quite broad and expansive. There's lots of things the, to try. The muscle rub, I actually really quite like for those. Uh, but a lot of people are asking questions about like tight forearms and, and things from uh, like too many pull-ups and, and, uh, and false gripping. And actually... Uh, Doing a little bit, you talk often about a little bit of self-massage on those forearms. Um, I've got some of the uh, the massage rub, and uh, that is a little delight rubbing the baby in um, to try and release those. Rather than just your bog standard, you used to just use olive oil, you know. But um, uh, but there we go. Anyway, yes, yeah, so there's lots of different products as well. Uh, all but you know the high strength um, oil drops is uh, is is the sort of the staple and. Um, the, uh, you can get 10% off as podcast listeners with the code SOC10. That's SOC10 for 10% off. Um, and the details for the link to Hemp Heroes website is on the in the show notes. So there is a link to click straight through from there. Right. Thank you to Hemp Heroes, absolute legends. And now I'm going to go again this time. It is now actually time to roll the jingle. <laughs> So we have the great pleasure of uh, Dr. Kickass. Um, but just uh, before to kick this off, just want to say um, uh, a big shout out to Reese the Jack on Instagram. He's one of our online members. He recommended uh, your amazing um, work, and so just wanted to give him a, a bit of a shout out and thanks for the recommendation. We've been diving into uh, some of your content and really enjoying what you're doing. A little bit outside of. Um, our specialism of I've never done any martial arts, but I always, uh, or MMA, I'm always like uh, very, um, type of thing that I'd always wanted to do, but probably just too scared to do, but admire what goes into that. And, uh, you know, some of the stuff that you're doing on the rehabilitation side of it is fantastic. Just give the listeners for the, you know, there might be one person that's listening for some reason, doesn't know who you are. Um, they, uh, what, what, uh, just give us a bit of a, a background on uh, on who is Dr. Kickass. Sure. So my name is Mike Pekarski. Um, I'm in the U.S. So for in the U.S., um, I'd be a physio. So we call them physical therapies therapists here. I know in where you are, it's it's physio. So how it works in this country is to practice as a physio. You need a doctorate degree, I think. Yeah. Um, in the UK, it's a bachelor's. It used to be a bachelor's in America, and then they first they pushed it to a master's, and now it's a doctorate. So I have a uh, my doctorate in uh, physical therapy, and I'm an orthopedic clinical specialist, which just means I have some advanced um, 
certification on orthopedic medicine, which is, you know, like generally someone has some kind of musculoskeletal pain. Um, I also have other various um, certifications for concussion management and uh, mobility and, and stuff like that. Um, but pr my main interest is around uh, martial arts and how we can rehabilitate the, you know, a grappling athlete or any kind of athlete related to martial arts. Um, and uh, I've been doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for about 15 years now. I used to fight uh, professional MMA. Um, and then once I, I figured out I couldn't make a living doing that, I was like, I'm going to go the physio route. And it was a very good decision for me. Amazing. Mike, do we have, just want to check, do we have a, a mutual connection in Duncan French at all? Do you know Duncan? You have, um, um, interesting. I've never actually met Duncan. So I've, I've worked with Bo Sandoval and Heather Linden. So, yeah. But I've never actually worked with Duncan French. Uh, we've had one of the podcasts for absolute legend. He's oh, nice. a, a, a friend of ours as well. But yeah, so we, we've actually we've had a conversation with him around some uh, MMA stuff before, and I think it's a fascinating, a fascinating sport. And the uh, yeah, I think that the real kind of like a um, a real a great example of, of what pure athleticism um, looks like. And I think from an injury prevention perspective, that's going to be really interesting for us mm -hmm. to, to dive into. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm really keen to get your, your, your sort of thoughts and just general philosophy about how do you go about training um, from an injury prevention perspective, a robustness and, and let's call it survivability perspective for sports like grappling and particularly MMA, where we have submission holds and, and we, there's, we get put in some pretty compromised positions. How do you go about building that that sort of real um, opportunity to kind of avoid injury in the first place. And then we can talk about sort of like rehabilitation maybe later on. Sure. Uh, so generally I don't think that things uh, go too far. They don't change too much based on the sport, but overall is you want to build some kind of, well, I'll say strength is a broad term, but again, like the, the more strength you have, the more robust, robustness you'll have, the more resilience you have. So generally we want to get like a baseline strength, um, one of the things that I do a lot, and, and I think it's very important for uh, grappling and jiu-jitsu and martial artists, is something called functional range conditioning. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Yep. Um, I find it really, really helpful. Not only do I find it helpful for just general joint health um, and approach on improving mobility, but considering that it's really focused on maximizing um, joint function with end range strengthening, like for mm. kind of terminal joint locks, it's like, no, a no-brainer, right? Because usually people are strong in their mid-ranges. They're kind of weak at that, that those end ranges. Those end ranges are really important for jiu-jitsu because either A, I have my arm extended and someone's trying to break my elbow, or B, that my arm is, you know, in a, in a max flex position because I'm using it to finish some kind of strangler chokehold. So I find that um, that system is really beneficial just to kind of, you know, the best you can bulletproof your joints. Um, again, I find a lot of people get injured because they do do movements or positions that their body isn't ready for. Again, the more mobility you have, once you can move freely in a range, then you can express strength in that range. Um, so that's kind of like where I would go with that. And then and I know you said you'd go into the rehabilitation from there, but one of the reasons I like this system is it's very easy to taper because you're using um, – isometrics but again isometrics or how much effort you put in so whether it's a submaximal isometric which you can use to start to get the the cellular process and healing process kind of focused on the injury site isometrics also great for pain relief 
but then you also can progress to you know really intense like 80 90 percent max volition contraction now we're trying to get some kind of neurological strengthening adaptation um very specific um to that range of motion so for for me it's it's very easy from re- rehab to performance it, it kind of like goes hand in hand yeah. I'm just going to follow that on, Jacko, just yeah. quickly, because it's, it's, I want to sort of geek out a little bit for a sports science um, perspective, because mm-hmm. we often, in, in calisthenics, we do a lot of isometric work mm-hmm. because of some of the static positions that we, we sort of want to get into. It, it just, it would be great if you can, you can speak with it within your context of, of, um, of how you do it from a physio, physical therapy perspective. But from a training perspective, you just like tell people, what the, like, explain the benefits of an isometric contraction, what's happening from a physiological perspective and why it's so useful to think about using those in particularly end range positions in terms of building that sort of that full range of motion and control hmm. through that range. So what's interesting, if you look in the literature, is that when you do isometric, it's very joint specific right? or, or range of motion specific per se. So, you know, like if, if you did isometric hold at like 10 degrees and in a full spectrum of a range of motion, you're actually going to get an overall strengthening benefit. So people just think that isometrics, it just works in this one area. Well, I mean, at one point it will, but you can use that to expand your control. Mm. Um, one of the reasons why isometrics are really beneficial is because there's no actual muscle shear, right? Because there's no motion. So we can still get a strengthening and a neurological adaptation, even though we're not necessarily trying to force a muscle through a range of motion, whether it's a concentric or an eccentric, which have more of a chance to do um, kind of like muscle uh, stress. Again, stress can be beneficial to create hypertrophy, but if that's not the goal, which again, for me, it's more about creating uh, strength and resilience. I'm okay if I'm not getting like a hypertrophy effect. Is it more um, neurological than the 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 isometric work? Yes, it, it's, it's gonna be it's gonna be more neurological. But if you look at it too, with a lot of strengthening, is those that like high level max f- effort? A lot of that is neurological anyway, yeah. because again, what you're doing is you're you know you're 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 demanding these this max volition contraction from your motor units. So as you get that, then you start to recruit more more motor units, which is why like again, it's more on a neurological effect because yeah. you're, you're you're just recruiting more motor units to get the you know whatever you're intending to do to do it amazing so it's really useful i think because it's particularly we'll, we'll often prescribe isometrics through different um, joint positions mm-hmm. even right from from sort of basic movements like a pull-up if people are trying mm-hmm. to, to build that strength through range then prescribing isometric holds at different parts so it's good to hear that just that um yeah a little bit of the, the rationale as to, to what's happening in terms of helping to build that kind of strength um that strength profile yeah. um if you like so it's, it's good also to hear like a another voice because one of the sets talking about the difference between strength a lot of the time people have when they think of i want to get stronger they've got like one image almost or one sort of thought of what that is and you and you say and you might say to them well you know what what are you actually meaning are you talking about like that maximal strength or are you talking about muscle hypertrophy what are you actually what are you actually wanting to achieve because depending on what you want to achieve then your training needs to be related to that type of adaptation this broad brush of i want to get stronger um it, it's good to hear you know the, the sort of a bit more detail on that from mm-hmm. from another voice as well for, for the listeners rather than just hearing me or tim banging on about about <laughs> that i wanted to pick up on something that uh really sparked uh a, a thought in my head that I've never really thought about or uh, where where I feel like NM, MMA and fighting type of training is 
that word resilience that you said, there's something unique about a sport like that. You know, I, my, I can, I sort of relate it because it's my context is like I used to play rugby, rugby union and it's quite a physical sport and you go around whacking each other and you get loads of injuries and that's part of, that's part of it. But the aim of the game is not to go and hurt someone. Um, the aim of the, you know, you're trying to win the game and that's by scoring points and, and getting tries. Someone might get injured in the process because it's quite heavily brutal in terms of context. But as you, you said, like someone is trying to snap my arm, like mm-hmm. they actually, the, I've got to try and, uh, to win, I've got to obviously inflict pain or whatever it may be to, to cause that type of a knockout or a, a submission or whatever. And then equally, I've got to try and resist that. So my this buzzword of resilience that is, is, is quite a big word now in just the, the whole of sort of sport, training, health, wellness, everything. Um, for a sport like that, you've actually got to, the adaptation you want, you, you're going to have to specifically train to stop yourself being able to... Um, resist some of those things where someone's literally trying to shoot you to you said mm-hmm. trying to snap my arm like how do you go i guess you've talked about that a little bit but just yeah that that was i don't even know if it's actually a question it was more of a, like that's just a different surely that's a different angle that many mm-hmm. sports don't have like i might try to build resilience in my rugby player because they're taking a lot of contact but i'm not actually programming into the training like this is how you stop your leg from snapping when someone's trying mm-hmm. to break it off well, so so I'll I'll answer because I think I kind of get what you're saying. <laughs> yes, so then there's a difference between like um, pattern specific and tissue specific. This is actually yeah. something coined by uh, Dr. Andreo Spina. So he's the FRC yes. creator. So I don't want to pretend like I'm I'm taking this from him. Yeah, but yeah, um, so like you know usually you know pattern is like something like you know any type of calisthenic hold, whether it's any kind of compound lift like a squat, deadlift, pull up, etc. That would be like a a pattern, right? Because yeah. you train a certain pattern because it's deemed that if you train that pattern, there's going to be more transferability towards whatever your activity is, or, or maybe it's something that has a broad ability to transfer. So tissue specific would be, okay, well, I know that when someone applies this arm lock, there's going to be stress on my medial forearm. There's going to be stress on my medial um, ulnar collateral ligament. So what are some things that we can do? So it's a combination of, I mean, for me, I understand the anatomy. So yeah. maybe I'm doing isometrics specifically in a wrist flex position. So my wrist is maximally flexed. So I'm really fle- uh, starting to stress some of those fibers that would be involved in you know, an arm lock. You know, it also could be if I start getting some kind of um, – you know, like a, a forearm supinated position. Again, when I do that, some of those fibers, that tissue, are going to all blend together on that um, common extensor or a, a flexor tendon, and then yeah. I can start to train that in that position. Um, you know, because one of the things that um, that Dre talks about is um, well, I'm blanking on the word uh, bioflow, right? So it's like you, you take a lot of the, the structures in the body, whether it's a tendon, ligament, muscle, connective tissue, they're, um, very, very similar. And it's usually not something where like the ligament stops and now it's a tendon and then it stops and now it's a bone. It's usually, it's more of like a gradual progression of the tissue is then kind of like morphing from one structure to the other. So the idea is that essentially they're all, um, similar and that they can all be adapted the same way. 
So even though like technically I'm talking about, you know, putting some stress through a ligament and then I'm putting some stress through the connective tissue and some stress through the muscle, I can still use that that position by putting myself in somewhat of a stretched position, then I start to engage that isometric. So I can, again, when my, my, my joint is in that position, you know, it, that joint will be more ready to absorb stress, whether I can generate more stress to resist or be that that tissue, just because even though it's more on a neurological level, because it's been stressed, it's going to be more prepared for, you know, a maximally extended elbow versus if you've never trained that before because i'm sure you know you guys have been to gyms and you see people work and usually people are, are, are mainly working you know those mid-ranges and it's, it's funny you go to certain gyms and you see people like they, they don't work through a full range of motion and then you get this idea that like you know weight training makes you stiff or it's like no no just like whatever you do move through <laughs> yeah. a full range of motion and, and it's going to be helpful yeah you know there's a there's a it's a specificity of training isn't it that uh, we can relate that we can relate it like into that uh, mm-hmm. calisthenics sort of area that that, that we I guess specialize in where mm-hmm. you you're you're trying to create a specific adaptation because you know the athletes you're working with are going to like be exposed to these types of positions mm-hmm. and it's the True. same for someone that's trying to learn a, a new movement that may require them to have more uh, connective tissue strength in some of these end range positions. If you don't apply some of your training to be specific to that, you're not going to get those specific adaptations. So it's, it's, it's really a call to arms for people mm-hmm. or just a reminder for people of like, make sure that our, uh, you know, you might not be uh, training to resist an arm bar, but there'll be some people actually that do that listen to the podcast that, that do, do, uh, um, MMA or, or, or some mm-hmm. of this stuff. And, but even if you don't, you can still take those principles and apply it to go, am I, Am I making sure that I'm getting some of my training specific enough to the adaptations that I'm trying to trying to achieve? Mm-hmm. Yeah. True. Yeah. With that, can I just ask a question on the isometrics? Just whether, like, if you were to, um, you know, shoulders would be a big one for 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 calisthenics. If someone was trying to uh, increase that robustness around that around that shoulder through some uh, like internal external rotations, what would a what would a protocol for doing some of those isometrics look like? Is that something you could describe yeah yeah so um it's actually good that you said internal external rotation so if you want to look at the health of the shoulder rotation is a really good way to look at it Mm -hmm. considering that like when i do shoulder elevation like i raise my shoulder my arm overhead there's actually like a whole bunch of joints kicking in play so you have the glenohumeral joint which is classically the shoulder which i'd be training you have the sternoclavicular joint, you have the acromioclavicular joint, which what they help to rotate the clavicle so that I can then rotate my scapula, so my scapulothoracic upward. So that's why we don't really, I, I wouldn't, I don't necessarily initiate um, shoulder training with that linear motion because I'm really trying to train the glenohumeral joint, which all your rotation is going to be from there. So. What I would do is there's one position called the sleeper hold. I know that 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 um, that position gets a bad rap uh, yeah. a lot of time, um, and then kind of my thought process with the sleeper. The reason why I like it is because some people what they do is they don't have a good awareness of where they're feeling it. So they're trying to do the sleeper, which is going to put stress on the posterior capsule. Yeah. The problem is, is when people do that, sometimes they're getting a pinch in the front of the shoulder. So really what they're doing is they're kind of getting like a closing angle dysfunction. So as I'm moving my shoulder into internal rotation, 
there's some kind of abnormal contact. So if I keep trying to stretch it, I'm not actually stretching the posterior capsule. I'm just going to piss off something in the front of my shoulder. So, you know, it's, it's, so sometimes what you have to do is you have to work with people and you have to do, you have to kind of just find the stretch. Like you have to kind of manipulate an arm position here, nothing, nothing, nothing. Cause there's no, there's no perfect way to stretch for anybody. It's all individual based, you know? So you kind of go through that. You make sure they're feeling the stress in the, the appropriate place. So again, I'm in that sleeper position. Another thing that people do is they, they don't want to just, you know, stretch the joint capsule and then make it uh, like loose per se, because if it's loose, you're going to have different issue. Really, when I when I do this isometric at that end range, I'm starting to create strength, which will also create control. Really, something that's loose is only problematic if I can't control the joint. You know, so we we look for things like a gaps in passive to active ratio so if let's say someone has like you know a lot of like gymnasts they have this large range of motion but they actually get to use the range of motion because they're using it on a day-to-day basis versus sometimes like with yoga and i don't i'm not saying against yoga but yoga there's a lot of stretching but they might not be actively using those ranges so so sorry i went off a little tangent yeah that's good sorry so let's say I'm applying my uh, my sleeper hold. So I'm in that sleeper position. I feel a stretch in the posterior capsule. Then what I would do is I'm going to use a um, an overwhelming isometric. So again, there's yielding isometric, and then there's um, yielding. Yielding would mean that maybe my top hand that's getting the stretch would push down, and that my shoulder that's being stretched has has to um, resist. I tend to. It, it, I tend to find it works a little bit better when they do the overcoming. So as opposed to my top arm pushing down, it acts like a wall. And then the shoulder that's stretched in an internal rotation would start to move, push up into an external rotated position to start to generate that. And then we usually do a slow ramp up because just like with an asymmetric, if you've never really trained that area, you know, if you go too far you know, you don't really know what your joint can handle. And sometimes people, not when I say hurt, like they're not going to damage anything in their shoulder, but it's going to hurt. Like they're just, their body's not ready for it. So you kind of do like a slow ramp up. And some of this is also based on um, the the person using it and understanding their body and how much force they can generate. So usually we can, I'll use light, immediate, moderate tension, max tension. Sometimes I'll use a percentage because that, that kind of gives people something to shoot for. I know not everyone has that that mind body control of saying push it fifty percent. As you practice it, you get better. So you'd slowly ramp up, taking a few seconds to get to your safest greatest effort. So my greatest effort might be one hundred percent. Someone who's new might only be able to push up to about fifty percent before they're starting to have pain. Right. So then that's mm-hmm. where we train. Time wise, we want to start to build up time. So if I'm doing like my my safest greatest effort, I'm in my one hundred percent. Maybe I'm doing like a 15 or 20% max isometric. Maybe it's only 50%. So if I'm only doing 50%, maybe I'm holding for 30, 45, 60 seconds. So like, again, a way you can kind of think about it, and this made me really helpful for programming isometric, is let's say you do, I don't know, like a a 10 reps of an exercise. How long is that going to take you? probably 45 to 60 seconds right so that's the idea is that whole time those muscles are un, under that that state of tension so that's something i'd want to duplicate versus like a max effort like you know if you're doing something that's really difficult how long are you really going to hold it for maybe 10 15 seconds 
So that would be one of the ways that I would start to introduce it. We would do a few bouts of those. Yeah. What that was working is that was doing isometric in the pregressive angle because again, if I'm if I'm stretching into internal rotation, so I'm in a, a max stretch position, but I'm using my shoulder external rotation from there. I also want to start to engage my um, my regressive angle, which would be the shoulder internal rotation. So with that, considering I'm in a stretch, I might not actually be able to push myself further, but I'm going to start to engage my rotator cuff, and I'm going to try to push into further internal rotation. And the idea is that you, if you strengthen both sides of the spectrum, whether it's a, you know, a lengthened position or, or a shortened position, both ways you're covered. Hmm. Like I said, I just do like a few bouts of that, um, and then I'd follow up with some uh, global joint motion, like a control articular rotation. Yeah. Nice. Great. One thing I wanted to get your thoughts on, Mike, was we, we think with calisthenics, we can get quite a lot of people who get overload injuries of um, particularly wrist and, and, and also maybe more prevalent is the, is the elbow. I was wondering, obviously, there's, there's a contact component that we've kind of discussed, but in, in uh, disciplines like grappling, where there's a lot of holding and a lot of sort of like close in work, where there's a lot of tension going through the wrist and, and into the forearm, do you have many sort of overuse injuries around the elbow? And have you got any advice for people that might be struggling with those things like golfer's elbow particularly? Yeah, I do. So, um, yeah, golfer's elbow um, or tennis elbow. So I, I just I, personally, I just think more of the structure. So it's the outside forearm and the inside forearm. So they tend to get overloaded with a lot of activity for in jujitsu, especially if you're using a kimono or a gi, you're using a lot of grips like you're because it, it, it's like a sturdy uniform. So you can grab it and you can kind of use it to manipulate your opponent. So a lot of jujitsu athletes tend to, to, to overuse that. In addition, it's very common for people to tap late to arm locks. And the reason why is because the elbow has kind of like a, a greater degree of how much punishment it can take before you have like a lot of damage per se, like a, a knee lock. There's a very small range of motion from when you feel tension to when you feel something in like one of your uh, knee ligaments is going to be damaged for the elbow. You just have a greater range. So, so it's not common or it is common for people to kind of like tap late. They might get a few quote, quote pops on their elbow. But again, again, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's doing damage to the ligaments. Um, so it is very common. So, you have to kind of differentiate between uh, acute and a chronic tendinosis. So, so okay, so uh, those things would be a tendinopathy, which means there's damage to the tendon. So you have to decide if it's an acute phase or a chronic phase. So let's say you're like doing a handstand and you, you know you haven't done it in a while or it's new, and when you're done, your, your elbow is just kind of irritated, right? Because what happens with a tendinopathy? is you stress your body. What should happen is that you stress, then you rest, and it adapts, and it gets stronger. If you overstress it and you don't give it enough time to adapt, that's when that tendon starts to break down. For those people, I would recommend more activity modification early on, which is not, I'm not saying don't stop everything, but maybe avoid that aggravating activity because it's very common for athletes to say, oh, this bothers me, and they just ignore it, and then they keep going, and they don't do anything about it. So maybe there's different types of, you know, calisthenics or positions that they can train without creating irritation. For the chronic phase, that's not going to work anymore. That, that tendon has just kind of um, the, the components of that tendon will be actually altered. So at that point, if you just rest, it's not going to do anything because now you have to actually rebuild the, the tendon strength. 
So now we'll go back to acute. Well, again, isometrics are actually a really good way for acute tendinopathy because it helps with pain. It helps to start to um, introduce the cellular process of, hey, this is the damaged part on my elbow. I want you to heal this, or I want all of the, you know, the the hormones to go to that spot so we can start to rebuild the tissue there. For someone like the, a chronic tendinopathy, again, I might start so with asymmetrics because a lot of times people may develop overuse is if they don't have adequate elbow or wrist mobility. Like I'm sure this happens with you guys where people are trying to do handstands, their wrists don't move. And if the wrist doesn't move, they're either, either going to overload the wrist or they're going to overload the elbow because something has to compensate for the lack of motion, right? Yeah. So first we would address the mobility to make sure that that those joints can move the way that they're supposed to for your activity. And then for that chronic phase, I would also then start to do some kind of isolated wrist flexor or extent, uh, extension strengthening. That's one position I actually like doing a lot of isolated work. I kind of treat tendinopathy almost like an elimination diet because, again, if you're like lifting weights, you're doing jujitsu, you're um, doing pull-ups, like, again, there's a lot of load into that. So if you keep stressing it, we don't really know how to do it. So I almost want them to take out all of those stressful activities and then slowly reincorporate them so that I can stress that, that area very specifically and systematically. So it's not like, so there, it's not getting a lot of random stimulation, which may, might mean that if I'm getting a lot of random stuff, I can't be as specific. And if I'm not as specific, I can't load as high as I would want. So usually if, if someone's dealing with, with a tendinopathy, I give them some kind of is, isolated uh, wrist exercise. And the goal is they might have an increase in symptoms at the time. Again, it might kind of flare up a little bit. But if by the next day, within the next 24 hours, you're back to baseline, then I know that that load was appropriate. Right. If let's say you're flared up, but then the next day you're still flared up, that means that I know that whatever load I gave you is too much, and then we got to break down. So again, we figure out what you can handle, and then we just progressively load it. Um, and then, assuming we get that under control, I'm dealing with an athlete. Now we want to reincorporate whatever the aggravating activity is, because I feel like that's what a lot of physicians get in trouble with. Like, oh, your elbow hurts. Stop doing this. Yeah. Well, you tell that an athlete, they're just going to find a new doctor, right? So. <laughs> So, so my job is be like, okay, well, this is what you're not doing. How can we get you back there? And there might be a point where we have to modify and say, hey, let's not do this for two weeks. But then we're going get, to get you back there. I'm not saying don't do it. Just don't do it right now. We let some of the irritation calm down. We, we start to build up some of the strength and resilience in whatever area. And then, then we go back to it and do some kind of great exposure where – I mean, you know, like, again, we'll take, we'll take handstands, for example, is obviously there's a lot of ways that you can taper that. So you go from like a less demanding to a greater demand. This way they can kind of build up and they know what's too much. So again, are they overloading it again or are they, are we doing it appropriate? And then they can, they can uh, adapt to the exposure that we're giving them. I think that will really um, resonate with some people because there might be even a light bulb moment. There'd be a number of people where, um, over like just overdoing like a slightly compromised pattern in say like a pull up or a muscle up where they've had that elbow pain and they have done the right thing to in terms of listening to the body and, and like resting but they've maybe gone to the point of they've they've annoyed it that much and they've got a bit of a that that tendinopathy that they're 
just by resting it, it eases off a bit. Then they go, they think they're, oh, I'll go back to doing them now after a couple of weeks of resting. And then it's like, boom, it just comes back straight away because you haven't actually addressed um, the problem and that the, just carrying on doing the thing that hurts isn't, isn't the right solution either. But as you say, just by resting it, you're not actually then, you know, uh, addressing the issue that that's at play when, and particularly with those tendons. So that's, that's, that'll be a real good encouragement for people. Mm-hmm. So thank you for that. Yeah. Again, I've got just a bit of a, a, a case study, almost example, Mike, from my own sort of experience of so just to talk, it'd be interesting to know what your thoughts are on this one. But I, f- I find if I'm getting some overload to the tendon and I want to go back to a point you made actually about activity modification, um, I guess it's probably a two part question. For, for me, when you say activity modification, I'm thinking if it hurts, try and train around it. So we're not trying to kind of continually do things which are aggravating the same injury as, as to what we've identified. Um, and then the second part is one thing I really find for me is if, I'm, if I've done a little, a bit too much overload into kind of a, a wrist flexion pattern that often comes if people are training ring muscle ups, particularly because we're in a false grip shape, I find that doing more loading into extension patterns like loading the other side of the joint and some eccentric work in there and as you say some isometrics. It's really like it's a super effective way for me of, of starting to, to dampen down the, the pain or the aggravation mm-hmm. that I'm feeling into the flexor tendons. Is that is there, there's some reasonable rationale behind that? Yeah, well, because you have to think that the w- w- with the wrist, whether we're r- wrist extension or flexion, there is a kind of a counterbalance in, in muscles. So even if, let's say, I'm, I'm, if it's we're, we're taking like the medial forearm and you're gripping, the, that extensor still has to keep that wrist in like a stable position. So that's why, even though like again, I always get confused between golfers and uh, tennis elbow because, but again, like in most cases, I treat wherever I find uh, someone has kind of like weakness, but overall the forearm has to kind of like, you know, work functionally. So you can't just overload wrist extension because I have to make sure that my, my, my flexors can do what they're supposed to, to help stabilize the grip. So yeah, there is a lot to that. That will be beneficial. Yeah. There's a, there's a good point there on. So just don't go in. Yeah. Just, uh, just having just what Mike said there of going like, okay, you're, um, when I'm gripping, um, when I'm gripping like the bar, so when I'm hanging, yeah, obviously those flexors are, uh, are working as, as part of that grip. And then even if I go into wrist um, uh, wrist flexion as part of like a, a, a false grip position, not only that like the the extensor tendons are lengthened, but they're also like we, we're probably not often thinking about how they're working to help stabilize and maintain that position as well, just because they're on length. But it, it's probably on a mi- on a sort of what well, feels, it's not a micro scale, but it just feels like a smaller scale, like joint of what Mike was saying right at the beginning of going like, uh, have you got strength in that end range position? It's just mm-hmm. a, it's an end range position that's quite abnormal in, you know, <laughs> in everyday life, unless you're yeah. false gripping a ring for a muscle up, you don't really need to have like, um, end range strength inflection whereas but you know that, that's where having speaking someone like you you're 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 working with guys with not only they need that strength there they're they're like they need enough strength to not get broken when when someone's yeah. trying to snap yeah. it in there so yeah and no, it's great yeah because you have to think too like I, I assume this happens with with a lot of uh calisthenic work is certain people there's just different mobility demands based on what you do so me doing you know martial arts i need a lot of hip mobility because i need to be able to one i need to be able to you know kick people in the head but i also need to be able to do do kind of like crazy things with my hips so i can play like an offensive uh guard you know for then someone 
you know, like you guys, like you, you need to have adequate wrist motion if you're going to do handstands because it's very, very common. Like I said, people to try to do things and they're, they're not quite ready for. Again, it's not a strength thing. It's like the wrist doesn't move. So if you try to do a handstand, it's going to be problematic. So it's like, what can you do? So what I would, would do with like that athlete is I would say, okay, let's, let's get this abnormal wrist motion for your activity. And then we can start to build it up, you know, and, and then in the process, you can build capacity in other ways to, you know, work whatever hold you're having trouble with. Great. I've got a question, Mike, that I wanted to ask you. Um, and it, my, I hope, what I'm hoping is that there are some, um, some MMA um, athletes or some people who are involved in combat sports listening to this. And then we can give an opportunity to potentially discuss or you can um, dismiss uh, the benefits of calisthenics. And one thing which we, we've kind of explored and, and played around with before, this idea around the, the opportunity that you get in, in, in this type of training that we do a lot of, of force transfer through the system and how that interlinks with the fascial system. And I'm, I'm really interested about force transfer in combat sports and how a training approach where you are sort of using multiple joints, potentially in isometric positions or um, yeah, in these, these kind of body weight progressions and exercises, how that sort of stuff of just having a better awareness of transferring forces through the chain might actually be beneficial in, in combat. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's this thing in a lot, and um, it happens a lot in the grappling sports. There's this thing that people call as mat strength. So you, you'll see people, like if you ever saw me in person, like I'm not necessarily like physically imposing, but there's certain positions on the mat that I'm very, very, very strong. And people are like, how can you be so strong? And, and it's not just me. It's it's This happens with a lot of people who've been grappling for a while, is They've, they've developed this mass strength, which is this isometric, which is another reason that I like using isometrics a lot. But I assume that this is very similar to calisthenics because, again, what you're doing is you're manipulating your own body just like in, in grappling where now I have to manipulate someone else's body. Um, so I, I do find that when you do this isometric work, when you do calisthenics or basic body weight, it does help a lot with that, that mat strength, and there's a lot of transferability to grappling. Um, into further context with calisthenics, personally, I also want to make sure that somebody can own that range of motion with their own body weight before I try to load it up, because it's very common. You ever go to a gym, you see people are doing squats, and they, the amount of motion they have is terrible. It's like, why don't you just make sure you have like a perfect body weight squat? You know, and then for, for something like, again, for, for just overall athleticism, you know, there's, there's common, well, we know that strength is important. We know, but we know also know that the strongest athlete in the gym isn't necessarily the best athlete. So then what transfers the best to improving athleticism? So that's one of the reasons I like calisthenics because you can load someone very easy, whether it's like a single leg squat, like, or a pistol squat lunge. Again, there's a lot of different ways where I feel that again, I also do a lot of single leg work um, clinically because if I'm seeing a patient and they're having an injury, they might have an asymmetry between sides. So if, mm. again, like I can start building the squat pattern, but again, that's only going to build so much. I'm going to have to do some kind of single leg pattern as well. So I can start to regain some symmetry, you know, and then there's some, some people that argue does symmetry matter. We also have to realize in the rehabilitation setting, chances are if something is injured, it's going to be weak. And we want to kind of get that back because there's a difference between if there's like a 10% asymmetry versus like a 50% imagery. Like you blow out your ACL, like your quad's going to be really, really weak for several months, yeah. right? Because 
you know, so it's again, like yeah, we yeah. really need to focus on that single leg strength. Yeah. And, and that's one of the, one of the things that I do like about calisthenics is especially for, for martial arts is again, if I'm going to control somebody else, I want to make sure that I can control my body as well. Yeah, I think that's great. I think, like you say, you've, you see these people, and I've worked with a number of people over the years as a strength and condition coach, where um, they're not necessarily the most physically imposing, but they can just produce. They can produce force. They can transfer it, and they they can. I think yeah, so much of it comes down to you say around just like body awareness and knowing where you are, and 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 um, just be able to link the segments together. I think it's uh, it's often in, in sports performance, and maybe not so much in in your world of combat sports because it goes without saying that it's an essential part of what you do. But in often in other sports, we can. I think sometimes go down this route of a bit too much isolation in terms of let's train chest today mm-hmm. rather than thinking about how that chest is actually going to operate within the wider system. And, and uh, I remember playing with the South, rugby with the South African um, scrum half who was probably five foot eight on a good day and, and probably about 70 kilos, but he would just pick up guys at 110 kilos and put them on the backside. And it, was, <laughs> um, it was always good to see because he's just uh, his little monsters just running around the pitch. But yeah, no, thanks for that. I appreciate mm-hmm. your, your views and, uh, and thoughts. It reminds me, Tim, of I think it was Brett Bar- Bartholomew, I don't know if you've come across him, Mark, that uh, he's in the States, um, where he was talking about like the skill of strength. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it was him on that. And if just this idea that like strength and be like, as Tim said, like being able to like build those segments together, there's, there's a, that, that neurological element, but equally like the skill of being able to do that. Um, hence why just not, it's not always just like the biggest guys or the strongest or whatever. Um, and in sport, it's like, yeah, it, it's not, it, it's not just how strong someone is, you know, when, when you go, when someone um, wins in, in the, in the octagon, uh, it's not like the person has just been lo- knocked out or is, is tapped out has gone. Yeah. Yeah. But I bench press more than him. Like nobody cares. That's not, yeah, it, never what, matters, it yeah. doesn't matter. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the skill is kind of interesting. Like the skill of strength is, is very interesting. I also find that that also helps to um, improve, um, interest right I, I assume that a lot of you guys work with calisthenics because they're they're fun and enjoyable and it's a skill that you get to train you can say the same for olympic lifts like again like that's a skill you have to learn like i don't feel like everyone needs to be doing olympic lifts you, even though if yeah. you want to be like oh if you want to be a powerful athlete you have to do these no no, no like that's a skill like it, yeah. you train that if it's fun you know same with with calisthenics again like it, it, it you give someone like a skill that they're going to like and then they're going to love it like you can't just it's very common for like trainers to be like okay like this is what you do and there's no variability like no one's going to respond the same way you can't just like load people up with weights like some people really like calisthenics some people like weights some people like olympic lifts some people like kettlebells and again you just figure out what they do and then you can start to train those those movements as a skill and now it's like, now it's fun again. And like, and, and, and that's for me, like, that's something that I like because again, it, it makes it more interesting. So I'm not just, I'm lifting this because I want to get strong. I'm like, I want to see if I can master this position. And in the process of mastering this position, there is going to be a lot of uh, physiological adaptations that I'm looking for. Hmm. Great. I'm going to close this off, Mike, because you're just like last question from me. And I'm just, I want for the, for the, the, the MMA fans that are listening, um, I keep an eye across like uh, various different sports and I'm always interested by people who sort of show quite sort of, a, let's say, I was going to say extreme, but it's not, it's just a high level athleticism. I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts as somebody in the game of um, Israel Adesanya's um, opportunity to go and take that, that light heavy welt 
heavyweight belt. I mean, he's a he's a sensational athlete. What's your what's your thoughts on that one? It's a pretty big prospect for the UFC, right? Yeah. So I my I will say that like despite all of my knowledge in martial arts, when it comes to picking fights, I'm <laughs> terrible. Like my, my, my so just throwing it out there before anything. Well, we'll just go uh, whatever you I, say. I we'll just put money thrilling. on the opposite. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, I, I, it's got I, to I be the most unpredictable sport, anyway. I would have thought. Yeah. yeah, it's true. Yeah, uh, I think stylistically, uh, I think uh, Israel Adesanya is going to be a, a bad matchup for Jan Blahovich. I feel Jan Blahovich is a very strong athlete. He's not particularly fast, um, but Israel Adesanya is very fast and he moves a lot. So I feel that if like Israel Adesanya like stood in one place and he gets hit, he's going to be in trouble. But I feel that he's going to be able to move around. I mean, I, I think that his uh, skill in striking is just very, very high level. I think Jane Blahovich is a very strong athlete. Obviously, he's the champion, so he's really talented, so I don't want to play that off. But I just feel that that's like um, he's like one of the more um, perfect opponents for Israel to beat to become the champion. Like I think someone like um, Dominic Reyes, like again, he's like a very fast, explosive athlete. He's not as refined, but I feel like he would give Israel Adesanya more trouble because he's bigger and again, he hits really hard. Um, when Jan Blahovich is again more stationary, um, so I think that even though you know Israel Adesanya has pretty much said that he's not expecting to put on weight, he's like, well, I'm not going to be stronger. I might as well just use this time to work on my skills, which is like. I mean, that makes so much sense. I mean, even like when Anderson Silva, when he was in his prime, he fought uh, Forrest Griffin. Like, he, he didn't put on good weight when he fought Forrest Griffin. Like, he just didn't cut weight, which is probably what Israel Asana is going to do. And, I mean, unfortunately, because I really like Forrest Griffin as a fighter, but, like, you know, Anderson kind of made him look silly. I can, I can kind of – I don't think it's going to be like that. But I think that, you know, focusing on what you're doing and, and your skill training – um, is going to be beneficial. Now, don't get me wrong. Like, sh- there's a reason there's weight classes, right? But there, there's certain athletes that obviously can kind of go up and down. Like, I would imagine too, if you look at someone like Amanda Nunes, like, it's a little bit different because she's the 35 pound champ and the 45 pound champ. Like, she doesn't put on weight to fight 45. She just doesn't cut. I know the the gap there is only 10 10 pounds versus from 185 to 205. It's 20 pounds, but you know, there's a lot of people that. Um, Again, like, how much are you really going to put on that much weight in like three months? No, you're not. Like, mm. if you look at what, what you, you uh, want to see, J- you are you want to see what I do between Christmas and New Year. <laughs> <laughs> you, you you take what like John Jones is doing, right? So he's going up to heavyweight. He pretty much just took like the last like six plus months to just put on weight. Like that's all he's doing, you know. But like, yeah. and, but he's not planning on going back down. And I think so. I think what Israel on this one. Israel Adesanya is doing is good for a longevity perspective. And again, stylistically, I, I think that that's a matchup that he can still do really, really well without necessarily need to get stronger. I mean, cause like when it comes to size, I think size pays off more in the grappling department. So if he was going against like, maybe like someone who's going to try to grapple him, that might be more of a problem, but I don't think Jan's going to try to try to grapple him. So I don't think it'll matter. I'm going to try and stay out of the way if he's got any sense. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> or get hold of him and just absolutely pummel him. But yeah, the hype is coming for that one, right? It's going to be an interesting one. And uh, he's, a, he's a, a very sort of uh, 
emphatic fighters. So, yeah, good to get your thoughts. I know there'll be a few people listening that are, are in this uh, in this in this sport, and um, I can never let you get away without giving us a little bit of a, of a commentary on, on what's up and coming. So, mm-hmm. thanks so much for coming on, Mike. It's uh, I'm jealous of your Instagram name as well, Doctor Kickass. I need to go and change, right? Way better than what I've currently got. So I'm going to go and put a bit of thought Thank into you. that. But yeah, appreciate you, your time today. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was good. Good to be on. Cheers, Mike. So if you don't follow Mike yet on Instagram, he puts out a ton of fantastic information. It is Dr. Underscore Kickass. I mean, that is a badass flipping Instagram handle, isn't it? Uh, the links will be in the show notes. So head over to Instagram, give him a like. And also, if you've got any questions for him, obviously, you can drop him a DM and uh, maybe just drop in and say hi. Enjoyed listening to you on Schoolcast and his podcast. That's nice. Yeah. So we hope you've enjoyed uh, this week's podcast. It was a great conversation, a nice little opportunity to take a little bit of a deeper dive back into some uh, some of the areas that always get discussed. And um, these are these are important things that we take on board. Some of the detail is where we can really maximize and double down on keeping ourselves moving well injury free and if we do get an injury knowing what to do a little bit about it so it's always worth educating yourselves in some of these sort of more sports science training science type conversations so we hope that has been of value it's reminded me tim of i'm gonna uh, to use some position uh, positional isometrics as part of um, a little bit of range of motion work in my warm-ups um, something I had played about with in the past um, from the Movement Mobility Masterclass with Ollie Foster we've got um, but I've forgotten not forgotten but you know when things just like slip your mind it's just been a nice tiny reminder like oh yes we have that in the virtual classroom and uh, yeah I need to uh, enjoy using that in part of those particularly in part of warm-ups so uh, I'm going to get back on that little train and get some more mobility gains thank you very much and you can come in when we're allowed to touch each other again once the pandemic is over and you can try and snap my arm and I will be resilient <laughs> I look forward to that day but until then <laughs> let's just continue to explore our physical potential with movement strength and play Jacko yes and equally there's been a number that I've had the requests have been flooding in that people are saying they love the name of the podcast they they, they love the outro but they still want to be dismissed uh, the formalities so until next time oh go on then class dismissed <laughs> <laughs>